I was remembering um, the first retreat we had. Was that five years ago, Joseph? Wow. That we had five years ago um, at Garrison. And I remember so well standing at the door and weeping at seeing people coming in to the first people of color retreat that we co-sponsored. And it's going into the uh, kitchen tonight, the I'm sorry, the dining room tonight, and hearing the level of energy, it was quite high. So, so I hope you all haven't completely exhausted yourselves by now. So uh, thank you for coming and welcome. And I just want to acknowledge uh, what it probably took for you all to get here. I know that when you come to a retreat like this and you spend a few days away in silence, it takes a lot to arrange that. And the cooperation of coworkers and family and friends and just a whole host of people. So they all come to this retreat with us in, in a way. So first to thank them all and to thank you for being here to do this very, very precious work. My name is Gina Sharp, and on my left is uh, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg is on my right. And the three of us, I'm welcoming you on behalf of uh, the three of us. We are really thrilled to work together and to uh, participate with you in this retreat. You will notice that Larry Yang is not here, and uh, he sends his deepest regrets and most profound apologies uh, unfortunately, his father was admitted to the hospital yesterday, and his father is 91. And he was on his way here when he got the news, and so um, called last night at uh, quarter to 11 to let me know that he would not be able to come to the retreat. He would have to go to California. He has um, the medical power of attorney for his father, and his mother is also 91, so he was concerned that she also needed um, his support. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't learned how to bilocate yet. So he wasn't able to be here with us. But I know uh, that we will all hold him deeply in our hearts and send him um, and his family our deepest wishes for his father's well-being and for their peace and well-being, too. Hmm. So we have um, the heavenly messengers. The story of the Buddha's enlightenment, his uh, search for enlightenment, started, it is said, with his seeing... Uh, someone who was old, someone who was sick, and someone who had died. And uh, so we have, all we have to do to understand aging is to look in the mirror and see what's happening, right? Remember that person who's in there doesn't look like the person you feel like you are, right? So we, every day we live with the fact that we're aging and their sickness, and uh, we also had a death last month of uh, Fior Cruz, who is a woman who has, uh, a yogi who has been, actually, she had come to all four of the retreats. She had started coming in uh, the first, for the first retreat, and uh, she died uh, last, last month. I was fortunate enough to see her about a week before she died, and she was absolutely luminous and beautiful, uh, but we are very sad to have lost her, so I would like to dedicate the merits up front of our practice to um, her peace. She also had an 18-year-old son and who just graduated from high school this year, and so uh, we can hold him in our hearts too. So the fourth heavenly messenger was um, a monk meditating. 
So we also, we have you each, each one of you here as our heavenly messenger. So all of the heavenly messengers are with us on, on this retreat. We have a couple of other people, um, Nakawe Cuevas, who's uh, also had a death in the family today and so is unable to come. So it's been, it's been an interesting, interesting time. And in a way, um, hearing of these deaths and of um, serious illness, we're reminded of the preciousness of the work that we are called to do when we arrive here. So if we could just take a moment right now and take a deep breath and acknowledge your efforts to get here and acknowledge those who are not with us. Send them our love. And our care. So thank you for that. I'd like to talk just a little bit. Um, Roberta has told you about the uh, schedule, I think, and uh, there'll be one posted. Uh, I just wanted to introduce Alison, where are you? Alison Pimentel, who has very graciously agreed to do um, two yoga periods every day. Uh, and I, I think Roberta explained uh, about the yoga to chief. Uh, so, Allison, why don't you just stand up so everybody can see you, Allison? Thank you. And again, uh, she's <laughs> replacing Stan Greer, who was going to do it, but also had an illness in his family. Uh, we are having, we'll be having um, interviews uh, on group interviews on Monday and Tuesday. And uh, we'll be having uh, sign-ups for individual interviews on Wednesday. We uh, will also uh, be doing chanting in the morning, so just so that you know a little bit about what's, what's going to happen. So I'd like to talk just a little bit tonight about uh, the retreat itself and uh, the ways in which we can uh, bring the right perspective and the right approach and the right attitude to what it is we're doing. Maya Angelou, the wonderful uh, writer and poet, uh, said that the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And this is such a place. So welcome home those of you who've been here before, and those of you who are coming for the first time. This is a safe place where we can come just as we are and not be questioned. We come to practice deeply the miracle of non-judgmental awareness. We take time and we practice. We bring, we can bring to our practice, to this practice of non-judgmental awareness, uh, certain attitudes that will help us to establish a depth in our practice and which will be helpful in maintaining uh, a balanced effort. It's a very special thing that we do. We have an opportunity to come and be here for these uh, five days in a very quiet, beautiful, and secluded setting. And you know how rare it is in this world to be able to do that. You know how rare it is to have quiet and to be surrounded by beauty. So we 
take this time to devote ourselves to meditation and to finding out about ourselves, about who we truly, truly, truly are. So these attitudes about which I spoke that are helpful in establishing for us um, a very balanced effort. The first is uh, patience. Those of you who've been here before, and how many, um, how many have not been here before? And just so that I get a sense, how many have been here before? Okay, so it's about half and half. So those of you who uh, have been here before know that time can, times on retreat sometimes can seem um, oh, wonderful and glorious and luminous, and at other times it may be difficult. Sometimes I know for myself, I was, I was thinking as I was driving up today, is trying to recall um, what it's like on the first day of a retreat and the first couple of days on retreat can be difficult because we are actually settling in and it's um, the body can feel uh, tired and the mind can feel restless and uh, maybe even have some doubt and sometimes uh, it can be boring and painful and other times glorious and rapturous sometimes beautiful sometimes insightful, sometimes restless, sometimes doubtful and painful. The first attitude that we can have is that of patience with all of the ups and downs of practice. We, when we can establish patience in our practice, we see, we begin to actually know things just as they are. We begin to know the nature of life itself as having these ups and downs. And when we have a patient mind, we begin to see things unfolding in a very natural way where we don't have to help things along, but we know that as we sit and walk and we actually allow uh, the practice to unfold, that something very beautiful can happen. And this patience really allows us to stay um, in a state most of the time of equanimity and balance and poise and, and grace. And no matter what is happening when we are patient, the two attitudes of meditation, of relaxation and ease on the one hand and alertness on the other, seems to be able to um, come quite uh, more easily. Another way uh, that we help to establish the container for this work that we do is uh, the silence that we establish. And you may notice, uh, maybe you don't because it's been such a high energy day for all of you as you've come together, but actually I notice when I come to IMS because of all of the uh, different ways, all of the many hours in which people have been meditating here, that there's a sort of natural slowing down that happens to my mind and body and a, a real relief um, for the, the, pa the, the, the silence and the um, quiet that has been established here. The silence that is established actually helps us to look at our minds. And that is um, one of the most important tasks that we accomplish. We begin to get a good look at what's happening in our minds. Because when we are, um, when we're talking and having, and you may notice, uh, you certainly you'll notice at the end of the retreat when we start to talk again, you'll begin to see how when we talk, a personality begins to get manufactured. And the silence that's established really, um, in a way, is a huge relief when we don't have to manufacture that, that personality that, and, 
that takes a lot of energy to do. And so when we, when we save that energy um, that talking takes, it can be used um, for this task of awareness and mindfulness that we are about. But be easy and uh, relaxed with the silence. Enter into it with um, surrender. Enter into it with real ease rather than uh, feeling as if it's something that's imposed from the outside. And sometimes I know that um, sometimes in childhood we've been told, uh, you know, silence is like a punishment. You know, go to your room and don't talk for the next half hour or the next hour. And so sometimes we associate silence with punishment. But actually the silence that's established here is a kind silence. It's a benevolent silence. It's one that is your friend that can really help you. So it helps. So we can go through the day um, with a with a quiet, beautiful awareness. And in in this uh, with with this entity of silence or this container of silence, um, our our very being starts to become clearer, the way in which our minds work, uh, what's happening in our bodies. Everything starts to become very, very clear. And this, uh, the silence, the external silence, begins to um, offer a uh, deep silence in the mind and in the being. And you'll find that as you relax into it, it really truly becomes like your true friend. So you may have uh, come with friends or spouses or significant others. uh, And it really is helpful if you make a pact with each other that you will support each other in in this silence that helps us all so much. It helps the entire community. So um, to actually... um, support your friend or your spouse or your significant other in this way is a very, very beautiful uh, gift that you, can, that you can give. You can help your, your other, your other person to uh, begin to know themselves as deeply as you will begin to know yourself. So um, the other... Um, aid to our meditation is slowing down. When we slow down, we begin to um, see much more clearly the activity of mind and the way in which our minds work. We, you know, we've lived with our minds for as many years as we've been, as we've been alive. And most of the time, we take it very much for granted. And most of the time, we think that we actually know the way the mind works. As those of you who've been practicing for a while know, that as soon as we turn to the mind, we begin to see a completely different um, field than that which we thought we had in the mind. So this ability to slow down, to be quiet, to be still, to have this silent mind, is really an aid in, um, in knowing the mind more intimately, and it is of great help in our, in our lives. So um, to help the mind to be strong and peaceful, and uh, in a way, when we emerge from the silence, because we know ourselves that much more, our relationships with others becomes uh, more precious uh, and and more deep. So uh, use this time. It's a very precious time. It's a very precious opportunity. It doesn't come often in this life. So I really sincerely hope that you will use it um, to establish the silence within and without 
to establish and begin to train the mind in patience. You already, I know, have great determination and courage in just in your, by the fact of your being here. And so to deepen that and to keep a balance in your practice, uh, keep a balance of effort to the extent that you can that's not pushing but yet is not um, without energy. So to establish balance, to try to keep a continuity of awareness, which we'll talk about uh, much more as the days unfold and as we give our um, instructions, but a continuity of mindfulness as well as a balance and a patience uh, in our minds um, in cooperation with the silence will be a great help in our practice. So in closing, I, uh, I brought a poem by Pablo Neruda called Keeping Quiet. And I brought it in honor of Earth Day. Um, we, are, um, we have a lot, of, a lot going on today. We have Earth Day. We have Althea Gibson's 50th, what they call a golden anniversary of having won Wimbledon. And so as just by the same token that we have a lot to um, work with in terms of deaths and illnesses and all of that, we also have a great deal to celebrate. We have um, the fact that we are on this earth, on this green earth, that it's still green despite our um, all of our, our attempts at making it not green. Uh, it's still a green earth, and so we can celebrate that. And we can also celebrate uh, Miss Gibson's uh, golden anniversary. So this poem is by uh, Pablo Neruda called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems to be dead in winter, and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. One of the um, traditional things that we do at the beginning of a retreat is we take, uh, we go for refuge and we take precepts. And uh, Joseph will be offering us um, the going for refuge, and we'll talk a little bit about it. And I would like to offer uh, the precepts now. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit about it, and then we've brought the, the sheets. We'll take the precepts together. So one of the uh, foundations for practice and uh, not only for our own practice, but for our practice together as a community, is uh, following certain moral precepts, um, which 
are uh, traditional. Uh, there are five precepts that are offered traditionally to lay people, which we are, and uh, sometimes also there are eight precepts that are offered. Uh, tomorrow I will um, offer the additional three precepts. Tonight we'll offer we'll offer five. We'll offer the taking of five, and uh, tomorrow we'll talk about the additional three precepts for those of you who would wish to do it, and we'll we'll let you know when and how, etc. But just to talk about the the first five that we would like to establish tonight. Uh, the first is um, the precept of not of res- uh, refraining from uh, harming all living beings. That includes human beings as well as uh, the animals, the insects, the bugs, all of anything that lives. And um, we, the taking of this precept helps us to um, cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of animals and plants and uh, everything that is around us in nature. Uh, I find that um, actually living by this precept, not only on retreat but in life also, that there is a gentleness that comes when we actually... um, learn how to value life and to abstain from from killing. So that's the first, um, abstaining from harming or killing living beings. The second is um, not taking what is not offered. And it deals, it's more than just not stealing. It means not coveting things in the material, psychological, or spiritual realms. Uh, And this precept, I think, really helps us to discover our natural completeness when we realize that we don't really need anything to complete us, but teaches us how to accept ourselves wholly and make uh, this total acceptance, um, recognizing our completeness. When we... um, when we undertake this precept to refrain from uh, taking what is not given, it also establishes a really safe place for all of us so that we know if we leave something somewhere, that if we come back a day later, it will still be there. This obviously uh, establishes a a feeling of safety and of um, trust that helps us all in our practice. The third training is um, usually given as, uh, or the third precept is usually given as um, not avoiding sexual misconduct that um, that may harm. In the context of the retreat, we take the um, we take the precept to refrain from all sexual uh, conduct. The fourth uh, precept is. Um, usually to refrain from dishonest or slanderous speech uh, in the context of the retreat, that really is very, very easy because we're undertaking the precept not to speak at all. Um, So the fifth is uh, to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or make us heedless. And again, uh, in the context of this retreat, we uh, abstain completely from any kind of intoxicant, which of course doesn't mean that if you have um, to take some uh, medication for an illness, uh, whether prescribed or over-the-counter, that that's not included. We're really talking about intoxicants. So we're hoping that um, you will take all of these five precepts and that you will undertake them as as training for yourself and as a gift to the community. Um, Joseph, would you like to do the the refuges first and then we'll do them all together? How does that sound? 
stuck ending them. Just as the sheets are being handed out, I'd also like to welcome all of you. For me, it's really a privilege to be part of this community uh, for these five days. Uh, it's, it's really a highlight of the year. Uh, and so I'm just delighted we're all here together. Very traditionally, retreats are opened with the taking of the refuges and precepts. And in the Buddhist teachings, there are three refuges, which are seen as a genuine place of sanctuary, a genuine place of safety. Now, in the world, people look to so many different things for refuge. They might look to health for refuge, and yet we get sick. Might look to youth for refuge, and yet we get old. We might look to possessions for refuge, and due to circumstances we may lose them. So these are not genuine refuges. The Buddha was pointing to aspects of nature, aspects of experience, that deeply and truly and genuinely provide a sanctuary for us in the midst of the busyness and the ups and downs of our lives. And the three refuges he talked about are those of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And these are three words from the Pali language, which is the language uh, that the Buddha spoke in ancient India. And Buddha really is not the name of a person. Buddha is a, it's a title. Buddha, the, the word means awakened, awakened one. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, what that means is that we're taking refuge in the historical person, this person who lived about 2,600 years ago, in India. And it also means taking refuge in the potential for awakening in ourselves, we could say in our own Buddha nature. It's helpful to reflect, and I've, it's been useful for me to reflect just a little bit on the Buddha as the historical person and what he actually accomplished. Because he was a human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't supernatural. He was just a human being who, through his own efforts, came to this amazing understanding of what it means to be a human being, to be alive, of really seeing into the causes of suffering in our lives and the possibilities of freedom. For those of you who have any experience in meditation, you know, we all know that even just to sit and watch the breath for three or four or five breaths in a row can be a challenge. You know, it's a, it's a big training we're undertaking. And the Buddha is someone who not only could watch his breath for five breaths in a row, But he had this amazing understanding of the mind where he could distinguish the different qualities in the mind and see what was wholesome and what was unwholesome and what conditions led to awakening, what conditions led to more suffering. He unpacked the mind in the most amazing way. And we have those teachings you know, as a guide to us so we don't have to figure it all out for ourselves. And I think as each of us practices uh, more and more and we see the complexity of our own minds, this sense of appreciation for what the Buddha accomplished you know, grows enormously. Uh, 
And so that's one meaning of taking refuge in the Buddha. It's like having appreciation uh, for his awakening and the recognition that this is possible for us as well. So that's taking refuge in the Buddha, the historical person and our own potential. Taking refuge in the Dharma. Dharma is a Sanskrit word, and it has a a range of meanings, but most generally it means what is true. It means nature, the nature of things, the law of things, the way things are. And so when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're not taking refuge in some dogma, and we're not taking refuge in some ritual. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we're saying, I want to see what is true. This is what I'm taking refuge in. And one of the qualities or characteristics of this refuge in the Dharma, and it's part of some of the chants uh, that are often recited, the quality of the Dharma is to come and see. That's the invitation that's chanted. It's not come and believe. And I think I can speak for Gina and Sharon. You don't have to believe anything that's said up here. Because it's not a question of belief. It's all just an invitation. You know, for each one of you and each one of us, it's just an invitation to look inside and understand and see what is true. What brings happiness? What brings suffering? So that's what taking refuge in the Dharma means. It's an acknowledgement that truth is our highest refuge. Not simply some opinion or some belief. So we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dharma, the truth. And the third of the refuges is taking refuge in the Sangha. And just so you know the word, it's spelled S-A-N-G-H-A. Because at one retreat we were talking about taking refuge in the Sangha, and there was one guy who, after the retreat was over, he said, you know, I love the practice, and I love the retreat. The one thing I didn't understand, why were we taking refuge in the sun god? (laughs) So it might have been my New York accent or something. So it's not sun god, it's sangha. And Sangha also has different meanings. Most classically, it means the community of ordained monks and nuns. It also means the community of enlightened beings. So we take refuge in these communities. But most applicably for us, I think, it means, and the way we use it here, is the community of all of us who are walking on the path, who all, community of all of us who are committed to understanding, committed to awakening, committed to the Dharma, to the truth. So we are all Sangha. You know, and you will see over the course of the retreat how important this refuge is because we give tremendous support to one another You know, when you're feeling maybe a little down or bored or restless, but then you either see or feel everybody else or others in the room kind of sitting and just being with the practice, it's an inspiration. Okay, I can do it. Let me re-arouse the energy. And when we're feeling strong, we become the inspiration for others. So the Sangha is a tremendous refuge on this spiritual journey which has many ups and downs. You know, this is not all easy going. So these three refuges provide a tremendous amount of support. The refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We generally uh, recite them or chant them in the original language of the Buddha. It's on these sheets. Uh, On one side is the loving-kindness chant, the metta chant, and on the other (coughs) is uh, the refuges and then the precepts. 
So I'll begin with the recitation, chanting of the refuges, starting with that top part where it says preliminary homage. And in the first sentence, I'll just do it like a couple of words at a time, and I'll say them, and those of you who like can chant them back. And then the second and third line, we can just do all together. Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Together Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Again, I'll do one one word at a time. Budang Saranang Gachami Damang Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami All together Dutiyampi Budam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Damam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Sangang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Budang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Damang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Sangang Saranang Gachami Anati Pata Weramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami To take the precept, refrain from destroying living creatures. Adina Dana Weramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. Take the precept to refrain from any kind which is not given. Abrahmacharya. Vairamani. Sikapadam. Samadhyami. Take the precept to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity. Musawada Weramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Take the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. Sura Maria Majapamadatana Weramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. The precept to refrain from using intoxicating liquors, drugs that lead to carelessness. Idam me silang. Magapalanyanasa. Pachyo. O tu. So we're now officially in silence, and um, I want to wish you a really fruitful and deep 
retreat, and I was a little bit um, uh, negligent in not saying how really thrilled I am to be teaching with Sharon and Joseph, who, as you all probably know, are the uh, co-founders of IMS and um, have been teaching here and around the world for uh, at least the last 30 years, 31 years now, I guess, and are the authors of several books that um, are, have become quite ubiquitous. Um, you know, they've, they've really been responsible in a lot of ways for um, the spread of Dharma in America and in other parts of the world. And so we are deeply, deeply privileged to have their presence and uh, their teachings offered. And I'm, I'm very grateful to Joseph for having started the uh, People of Color Retreats with me five years ago and uh, to Sharon for being a wonderful teacher for me. Both of them have been wonderful teachers for me. And also, as you probably, if you were here two years ago, was it last year or two years ago? Uh, she did the, um, the, the, the meta practice for us. So they're not strangers to our community, and uh, I'm, I welcome them as honorary people of color. <laughs> That. Hello. Okay. Thank you, Gina. That was beautiful. Uh, I'm also very happy to be here and very, uh, very honored. I don't want to talk too long because I'm sure you're pretty tired. Um, one thing I wanted to say was that, uh, as Gina said, Joseph and I and some other friends co-founded this center uh, 31 years ago now. And for 31 years, I've been trying to get rid of the word yogi, uh, completely unsuccessfully. I was sitting outside uh, when uh, Roberta was doing that, um, the manager's talk, and I don't know if she explained the word yogi, but when, as soon as I heard her say it, it's like one of my pet peeves that we use a word that people don't really understand. Um, when Joseph and I were in India, we met in India in 1971, and our, our teachers in India referred to the people who came to meditate as yogis. And then when we came back, uh, began teaching, and started the center, and we just started calling the people who came to sit with us yogis. And in those days, it was particularly weird because hardly anyone even did yoga, you know, and so it was just this word out of nowhere. Uh, but like many things, it was a word that stuck. And I haven't been able to remove it from our our uh, language. So that's all it means is people who come to meditate. So when I see these things like yogi job, I think someday, but maybe not. <laughs> um, it's hard to say. So we're just going to do uh, some meditation together now. And um, all I want to say about that as a way of... Um, preliminary introduction had something is an echo really of what Gina said about balance one of the principles of the meditation practice which I actually have found kind of breathtaking in my own life is that we don't seek for certain experiences we don't have to grab or try to get like a magnificent insight or some fantastic altered state of consciousness what we're really doing in terms of the work is trying to bring our system into greater balance because the belief is that if we come to a greater state of balance, automatically there will emerge greater self-knowledge, greater connection, greater understanding of the world, greater love, greater compassion, and so on. So we're not trying to have those states in the sense of acquiring or holding on or grasping, but our work is about balance. And balance will look different for all of us all of the time. Sometimes we find we're trying too much too hard and the right balance is relaxing and letting go some and being more at ease. Sometimes we've let go a whole lot and <laughs> the balance is to come forward a little bit and give more of ourselves over to the practice and to, to have more fullness of presence. It's always changing. It's always moving. It's not going to look alike for anybody and for any one person all of the time. But right from the beginning, we say in our sitting, our posture reflects a certain balance. 
So we talk about trying to sit with our backs straight but not really stiff and uptight because that kind of rigidity obviously is way over on one extreme. The other extreme, though, is you don't want to sit so slumped over that you're bound to fall asleep. You know, you might fall asleep anyway, but we don't need to set the stage so that it's inevitable, you know. There's some place in the middle where our back is straight but not stiff, where we feel that kind of energy of sitting up, you know, being alert, but we're also relaxed. We're kind of at ease. And so we play with that, that kind of feeling. And we bring that feeling right into our practice. And certainly the practice instructions and the guidance will unfold throughout the whole retreat. It will change. It will be elaborated. It will be... um, distinctive each day, but it all builds on itself. It's all connected. And generally speaking, we often begin with just the simple act of sitting and being with the feeling of our breath. So if you can have your back be straight in that reflection of balance, you can close your eyes or not. It depends on how you're comfortable If you do keep your eyes open, it's good to find a spot in front of you where you can just rest your gaze and let it go. If you close your eyes and then you get really, really sleepy, it's a good idea to then open them up and you can just continue on in that way. And I'd like to start actually by having you bring your attention to your hands. And notice that we don't actually feel fingers. What we feel is sensations. Throbbing, pulsing, warmth, coolness, lots of things you can't name, and you don't need to name them, but we can feel them. Bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, wherever it's clearest for you, at the nostrils, at the chest, or the abdomen. And in just the same way, see if you can feel the actual sensations of the breath. No need to name them, but feel them. The normal, natural breath, you don't have to try to make it deeper or better or stronger or anything. And let your attention settle on just one breath. From the beginning through the middle to the end. If you like, you can use a quiet mental notation of in, out, or rising, falling to support your awareness of the breath. Let your attention rest in those sensations. And if you find your attention has wandered, don't worry about it. It's actually a very crucial moment in the practice when you realize you've been distracted. Your mind has jumped to the past or jumped to the future or jumped to judgment or whatever. Because that's a moment when we have the opportunity to have some compassion for ourselves. No matter how long it's been, no matter where you've gone, it's okay. Just gently let go and begin again. 
Gather your attention, shepherd it back to the feeling of the breath. If you have to let go and begin again thousands of times, it's fine. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. So, thank you.
will send you to bed. And uh, we have um, 5.15 wake up tomorrow with a 5.45 sit. But we're going to make that an optional sit just to be kind because we know it's been a hard day getting here. And I know there's at least one person from California, so uh, we'll allow you to sleep in tomorrow. And then we'll crack the whip the next day. So have a really great night uh, of sleep and rest, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you want to come, I'll be here. Okay, good. And they'll be chanting too. Okay, good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.